Oh, thing I wanted uh, to address first is, is I've had a couple questions from people about a comment that I made seemingly offhand last night about how I think premarital counseling is a complete waste of time. Remember I said that? Let me kind of fill in the blanks there, okay? When people want to get married and they want me to officiate, my main concern for them is that they're growing in Christ. If I want to counsel them, the both of them, I want them to be growing Christians. I want them to know more about Jesus, to go into this thing called marriage, which they really don't know really all what to expect, first and foremost, as growing Christians. And so that's my main concern. Second thing is, for all the couples that I marry, I insist they call me in a year, and then we start talking about marriage. So that's, I mean, so I'm not, I'm not, people disagree with me on this one. Your campus minister might disagree. I'm not going to die on this hill, but I don't want you to think that I'm flippant about couples getting married. But I think the first and foremost qualification or, or preparation is to be a growing Christian. All right, we're taking this week a, a rocket ride, a 30,000-foot uh, flyover of the idea of glorification and heaven. On the first night, we talked about it being that it's not an optional extra. The, the, the idea that Jesus is alive, that he did, he did, his bones are not lying in Palestine somewhere, that because he did raise from the dead, is that we can follow in that resurrection hope, and that if only for this life we have hope, that we are like those people who worship a fat, dead rock and roll singer, where we were kind of like wasting our time. But he has been raised from the dead. He is alive. Second night, we talked about, again, the 30,000-foot view, the essence of what heaven is. We had some preliminary points, that it's a physical place, not just an ethereal, um, disembodied spirit place. It's a place that you don't get in on your own merits, but we're there because we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, what Jesus has done for us. Last night, we looked at a little bit of the, uh, and we looked at the implications of the idea that the essence of heaven is the presence of God rather than the absence of sorrow. And we saw that one of the uh, implications for us is it helps us to be biblically confident, not sort of arrogantly self-confident, but comfortable in our own skin because of our identity and where we're headed. It helps us with perseverance. It helps us with hope. Remember, hope is not the same thing as optimism. Optimism being that secular construct, we kind of weigh the odds. Yeah, I think things are going to happen that are good. Hope wrestles with despair and frustration. It doesn't generate this kind of bright, shiny, happy people thing. It generates the courage to speak the truth, to endure even hardship, because you know what the end is going to be. And we rest on that resurrection hope. Tonight, what I want to do is to back up and to look not so much exclusively at what it means to you personally, but what it means to the wider people of God. That is to the church, uh, to, the, to the gathering of Christians. Now, of course, what benefits you as an individual Christian clearly benefits the church. But I want to look what the scriptures have to say on what this thing called glorification, the impact it has on what the world sees in the church. And what we're going to do is we're going to back up to the Old Testament. We're going to look at Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9 to 17. And Zephaniah, um, if you have a Bible, you go to the Psalms and make it right. It's a small book. It's called it one of the minor prophets. And we call them the minor prophets not because their message is unimportant, but because they're smaller books. This one's only three chapters. 
And Zephaniah was a prophet who lived over 600 years before the birth of Christ, and he was speaking to God's people in the nation of Judah. And he's speaking to a people of God who are racked by division, who are being extremely disobedient, who are ignoring the mercy of God and what he expects of them. And he speaks a lot of this thing called the day of the Lord. And in the first two chapters and a bit in the third, the day of the Lord is a fearsome thing. It is a day of judgment. It is a day when God will visit them, not in a way that they're looking forward to, but to correct them. But beginning in verse 9, he shifts the perspective, and the day of the Lord becomes something that he sees in the future as a day of restoration, a day of hope. And we begin in Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In that day you shall not be ashamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from you your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Amen. So all those years ago, in looking forward to the work of Jesus, that's what the people in the Old Testament did. They had faith in the, in the Christ of prophecy, looking forward to him. Even in the midst of this terrible time among the people of God, this prophet looks forward to this thing called this day, this day of restoration. And in this, he sees both a now for us, a now and a not yet. He's looking to what we experience now in reality, but it's fullness, it's complete fullness in our experience to come. The New Testament speaks of the idea that we live in this present age, often called the present evil age, this present age where there is frustration, there is sin, there's anger, there's heartbreak. We live in this world, but we also live in the age to come. Christians live in both these worlds concurrently. Glorification heaven is a future expectation, but it affects our present reality. And all those years ago, as he speaks to these people, he makes reference to what this means to us how it affects the people of God, what it should be the distinguishing marks of the people of God who live in light of the fact that glorification is a future expectation, but in a very real sense, it's a present reality. What does that mean? Well, 
one thing he says here is that a people of God, the church, us, who live in light of this are people who are a gracious people. We need to be a gracious people. Look at verses 11 and 15. Looking forward to that day. In that day, you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away your judgments. And saying this in the midst of people whose sins were real, whose judgment was deserved. But on this day, he says, my, 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 righteous, the, my righteous demands will be satisfied. The cost will be paid. By who? By Jesus. In that day, that's the day that we recognize is now. God's graciousness has taken this shame away. The judgment passes from us. We see in Christ's work to him. In Colossians chapter 2, we read this. You are dead because of your sins, because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He canceled the written code that stood against us, that was opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. So that day of graciousness from God is now, isn't it? That day of forgiveness. And as a result, we are to live that gracious life. Ephesians, we read this, that we are to forgive as the Lord forgives us. If we have any conception of how great that is, it means that we are a gracious people. We live in the light of God's graciousness, and we embrace this. We embrace the idea that Christ has set us free from that burden. Now, I say that, and you say, and I don't blame you, I often say, well, goodness, I certainly don't feel that way. Often I am just weighed down by this incredible sense of guilt and shame. What's, what is this? There's, ooh, there could be all kinds of reasons. Let me just, just, just list one. It has to do with, we talked about the idea of sanctification, that positionally Jesus has, has forgiven all our sins. But in this life, we saw the first night, that those temporal aspects of, of the Christian experience. We live for Jesus. And the Bible talks about putting away the deeds of the flesh. The idea that we're straining forward, we saw that last night. This idea of more and more shaking off the sin that so easily entangles us. And yet, we still, we know that Jesus loves us, Christ died for us. What is this remaining sense of guilt and shame for all kinds of reasons? I think of one. I went to um, seminary in the 80s, graduated in 88, and one of my favorite professors was an extremely quirky, but I love the guy. His name was Al Freund. And uh, he was a church history professor. And uh, before he, he got into teaching in seminary, he was a pastor. And he trained uh, right out of college. And he went to a seminary. And his first pastorate, his first job as a pastor was in a little town in Mississippi. That shall go unnamed right now. And you'll, you'll know why in a few minutes. He, um, he was raised in a home in a larger city in the South, and he was not used to small-town Mississippi life. This was the early 1950s. And his, he, his first, he and his wife moved to, the, to this town, and his very first day on the job, he was so excited about being there. They moved into the house. The movers had come. All the, they were ready to go. And he said, I'm going to walk a couple blocks to the, um, to the town area. They lived a few blocks away. 
And so he just, by himself, he went out the front door and he started walking on the sidewalk toward the downtown area, the town center. As he was doing that, walking toward him, he noticed, was a very elderly man, elderly African-American man. And as they approached, this young white pastor was getting ready to greet him to say hello, and all of a sudden something happened he didn't quite understand. The older gentleman, he took his hat off as he, the young white guy approached. He stood off to the side, he bowed his head, and he waited for this young 20-something pastor to walk by. He was baffled by that. What, what is this? Well, later he, he learned that this man had learned that behavior from his father who was a slave. He, he learned that. That it was a learned behavior, it was a habit that he had picked up. And trust me, in the town that he lived in, there were all kinds of things going on that would make him feel that way. But at the end of the day, he was not legally a slave, and yet he was still had these habits of thinking, I had to defer to, to a white guy. I got to defer to him. I got to take my hat off. This filled this, this it, and, and this pastor was, felt this was humiliating. Why was he acting this way? He was acting that way because even though the laws were there that he was free, even though there had been the Emancipation Proclamation, there was this deep-seated habit of thinking and feeling and acting like a slave. And not only that, the world that he lived in, this town he lived in, was doing all it could to convince him, yes, you still are a slave. When we live for Jesus, and Jesus frees us from our sin, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. We are free from that. Yet, in pressing forward to live for Christ, there are any number of those habits, those ways of thinking and feeling and acting like a slave, the sin that so easily entangles, that we just so find so hard to get rid of. And we think, and we act, and we feel like a slave. And like that small town in, in, in the South in the 1950s, we live in a world which is going to tell you in all kinds of ways, yes, you still are a slave. You should be ashamed. You may go to churches that tell you that. And ironically, even when, the, even when you live in a culture which tells you you can do anything you want, it still sends you the message that you should be ashamed. You should be embarrassed. You live in a world where we think that there's a meritocracy, that's the way you, the way you look, what you achieve. When you have children... You want your children, you want your kids to be socially skilled and good-looking, and you want to live your life with them, and you're embarrassed when they're not, and you're ashamed of that. You think you can do anything that you want, but you live in a world which judges you harshly on the way that you look and what you achieve. So like that older man back in that small town, even though you know you're free in Jesus, you got the habits of thinking like a slave, and you live in a world which tells you you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You don't measure up. But in Jesus Christ, we are free, aren't we, please? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even in Jesus, we have the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we are called now to shake off the sin that does so easily entangle and to rid ourselves of those habits because of the gracious relationship we have with Jesus Christ. And that should characterize the people of God. We need to be moving toward 
being this gracious people, which spills out into our relationships with each other and the world around us. What do people on your campus think about your RUF group? What do the people in your city or town think of your church? Well, let me tell you what in the first century, in the second century, one of the very first records we have of people observing Christianity, they wrote this. In 130 AD, this was written. Someone is observing Christianity. He writes this. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as foreigners. They marry as, all, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. You see, in some of these towns they lived in, that was kind of going on. Child sacrifice, but they don't, the Christians don't do that. They have a common table, but they don't have a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they claim to be citizens of heaven. They love all men, but seem to be persecuted by all. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, appear to abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet, in their very dishonor, they appear to be glorified. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened to life. They are assailed by some as foreigners and persecuted by others. Yet those who hate them seemingly are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. That's, and they lived in a world <laughs> extremely hostile to the idea of being a Christian. So I ask, what is it that we are known for? on your campus, in our churches. Now, the idea that we have to expect the world around us to understand all the things that we believe, we just can't simply expect that. But do certain things leap off the page what people think of you and your group and your church? I mentioned the other night my brother was a, uh, he's an airline pilot. He was that naval aviator. And uh, when he was flying for the Navy, he was home on a leave. And I was home as well. We were visiting. And um, I was uh, studying for the ministry. He knew was, um, I was the religious one in the family. And so he just, they were encouraging with what I'm doing, but not, didn't quite totally get it. And he told me that in his wing, in his squadron, he was flying off an aircraft carrier. He says, yeah, you know, we got, we got a bunch of really outspoken Christians in our, in our wing, in our squadron. And before I could ask him what, you know, what he thought of them, he said to me, yeah, but there are a bunch of no-loaders. No-loaders. I went, what is that? Well, if you ever see a jet take off an aircraft carrier, you know that it's, like, it's kind of catapulted off. There's a tail hook, and there's a thing which connects to the plane. When it's ready to take off, it, it sort of slings it up in the air, gives it extra velocity, extra speed. Well, sometimes the tail hook malfunctions, and when it's ready to go, it doesn't go at all, and the plane just sits there. And that's called a no-loader. So in naval aviator language, if you're a no-loader, you're not good for much. He just said, I mean, he said, you know, they're, you know, they're just, they're, they're a little, they're kind of arrogant. They're kind of self-righteous. They keep to themselves. And some of them aren't very good pilots. So, ooh. <laughs> Ouch. Wow. And I don't know. Oh, and he said, yeah, they're, um... They're always inviting me to Bible studies, 
But I'm just not all that interested in going because, you know, they just don't carry their weight and they're kind of arrogant. And that really stung. You, you wouldn't expect him to fully understand what they believe, but you would expect that they would be not self-righteous, that they would be good pilots, that they would pull their weight. And so, what is, I mean, it's a question that's fair to ask, is, was the graciousness of Jesus, of their life in Christ, one that was spilling out in their relationship on that ship? Is your relationship with Jesus, the gracious relationship you have with Christ, spilling out in your group to those around you, in your churches? In John chapter 13, Jesus told his disciples that there'd be one paramount distinguishing mark they would have that people would know them by. One. One. So one thing. Now, he wasn't excluding all others, but he said this is a really, really, really important one. This is what you're going to be known for. And it wasn't being known for being what they're against. But trust me, when you live a life in the church, you live a life for God, there are times when you actually do have to stand against things. There are times when you have to stand up for things that aren't right. In the United Kingdom and in the U.S., the abolitionist movement, the slave trade, the anti-slave movement, was driven largely by evangelical Christians. We're against that. Okay? Well, there are times when you do that, but that was not the distinguishing mark Jesus was referring to. It's not known for being angry. Not. And yet, I've got to be careful with this one. <laughs> there are, the Bible speaks about that human anger is a terrible, destructive thing. But there are sometimes, the Bible says, in your anger do not sin. There can be moments of a righteous and a good, when, you, when we're angry and sad and heartbroken of things God is displeased with. When people attack the people of God in certain kinds of ways, the defenseless. There is a certain righteous kind of anger. It's, it's really different from the anger that you and I love to indulge in. But are we known? No, 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 no. We're not even known. He said, that's not that. It's not known, you're not supposed to be known for the, the shibboleths or the language or the special, um, the t-shirts that you wear. You're not supposed to be known for being, like for even, even speaking up in class and defending Christianity, which you have to do sometimes. Not that. He says this, I've given you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for another. So that's, among other things, spilling out into our lives as a result of our gracious relationship with Jesus and waiting for the life to come. We do that. We wait for this. We wait for this day. And yet, we struggle. How is that? Well, hang on, we'll get to that. The other thing it says here is that we are also, as a result of our gracious relationship with Jesus, living in light of heaven, we are to be a people who are unified and yet diverse. Look at verses 9 and 10. For then I will restore to the people a pure language, that all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. 
and I, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I read a book that told me this of a smart guy. That phrase, one accord, is literally one shoulder. They will serve him with one shoulder. Verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. You know when God began to gather people to himself, beginning with Abraham, he started with a nation, didn't he? A peculiar people, the nation of Israel. But that wasn't the ultimate plan. The ultimate plan, but even, it was even controversial in the New Testament and the Gospels, that this message is for all people, Gentiles alike. And we know this in, in this passage, it's one of the earliest references to the gospel going to all nations, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. That's a reference to people outside Israel. This is the day of restoration is a day where it will transcend nations and race and tribe and language. And that's the way it's going to be in glory. In Revelation chapter 7, a picture of heaven. After this I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes, people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And that's today. For in Christ Jesus, we read in Galatians, you are all children of God through faith. There is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That we are a unified, diverse people. And yet, it's been said, and I believe Martin Luther King Jr. said this, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in the nation. Have you heard that before? That Sunday morning is, all, is the most segregated hour hour in this country. A month ago, a survey was published. 86% of all American congregations are almost exclusively made up of one race. 86%. We are to be unified. We're to be moving shoulder to shoulder. Christians are to be unified. And yet, that professor I mentioned of church history, he defined the history of the church as this. First day of class, he said, ladies and gentlemen, the history of the church is a history of division. And so when it speaks of this day of restoration being one of unity and with all nations, and yet we don't see this, how do we respond to this? What do we do? Um, well, <laughs> we, we live according to reality. Um, in 1 Corinthians 3, um, the Apostle Paul was, was talking to a church racked by division. And in this case, this church was doing this. We've never done this, but they did this. They were lining up behind strong personalities. They were lining up behind popular preachers. They were saying, hey, we follow this guy because he may be a strong preacher. Well, we follow this person over there. And, he, and, the, and they were a church just racked by division. And what he says to them in chapter 3 is this. He says, don't you know, aren't you aware? And he begins to use these pictures of unity. You are God's field. You are God's building. You are God's fellow workers. And later he says, he uses a really strange, it seems, analogy. He says, you're like a batch of dough with new yeast. New yeast. And that's the way you really are. Saying to them, when you act in a divisive way, when you act arrogantly, when you, when you forsake other Christians because of external trappings, when you only think of yourself, when you exclude other nations or tribes or races, you're not acting according to your true 
spiritual nature. So act according to the way that you really, really are. How can this be? 1 Corinthians um, 13. You ever go to a wedding and hear that love chapter? You know that one I'm talking about? Yeah, every, every wedding you've been to, right? It's a good chapter. I like it. But now it says there, we see through a glass dimly. It says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I acted like a child, and always I was a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. But then he says, I shall know, then glory, I shall know, even as I am known. But now we see dimly. In light of heaven, we understand that we are one in Jesus right now. We understand that our sins have been forgiven. But in this life, we, we, we don't fully apprehend because, because of our dimness, because of what God reveals to us. We don't know it all yet. And the process of the Christian life is more and more understanding what God shows us in the reality of Jesus. So we act according to our real nature. We are to be gracious people, known for our graciousness because God has been gracious to us. We are known to be unified. And it's important to understand here, too, I'm not talking necessarily about... Um, institutional or missional unity. They're both very, very important. When I was a campus minister, I would often have um, people call me from other ministries who I got along with great, and they'd say, you know, wouldn't it be great if there were no separate campus ministries on campus and we all were just one? And I think that's a great idea. But even then, it's, it's, it's not based upon the fact that we all just get together. It's not necessarily institutional unity. In the 1960s, there was a series of civil rights laws passed in America. Very, very important. But the idea that institutionalizing, institutionally changing laws would change hearts, is that true? No. Laws are important. The Christian perspective is we begin our unity with the basis of spiritual unity in Christ and pursue those other forms of unity as a result of that. It's, it's a lot easier to say, oh, we're just going to be, we're, we're all going to gather as one group and then figure out how we're going to love each other. It's easier to say we're all going to be one, we're going to pass these laws and say how are our hearts going to change towards other people. Finally, and I'm bringing this in for a landing now. The third thing is this, is that we are to be a people beloved of God. Look at verses 16 and 17. I make fun of Precious Moments figurines. You ever see Precious Moments figurines? You know what I'm talking about? You know, I, I, that's, that's just me being like, think I'm cool, I'm being arrogant, you know. I often make fun of like, you know, Bible verses you put on fridges. I shouldn't. That's really bad. It's a good thing. But if I were to have a Bible verse on a Precious Moments figurine or one that I put on the fridge, this would, this would be the one. I had a, a Baptist friend in seminary who would come to certain passages and he'd go, oh man, that'll preach. <laughs> All right? Verse 16 and 17, this'll preach. In that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. 
He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That'll preach, won't it? <laughs> I like that one. All right? Yes. All right, and here I go. So when I'm saying we act as beloved of God, this gives us a basic relational picture of our union with Christ. It would be a mistake for you to think after this week that Tom Cannon was saying, okay, here's heaven, here's the benefits, and somehow they connect. No, 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 no. I was having an online discussion with some people and we were talking about in, in Christianity, you never separate the benefactor, the benefits from the benefactor. It's not a list of his good things. It basically, the most, fundal, the most fundamental way of living as a Christian in this world is the way we will live in the next. All right. I, I, I may say that again, because if, if you're going to write one thing down or you're going to put one thing on Twitter... <laughs> it would be this. I'll repeat it. The most fundamental way of living as a Christian in this world is the way we will live it in the next. Joining with Christ, living with Christ, loving Christ, and speaking with Christ. And emotionally, experientially, it is our God rejoicing over us with gladness quieting us with his love, rejoicing over us with singing. You talk about memories you want to invent. For a long time, I kind of invented a memory that this was kind of my experience as a child. I made it up out of whole cloth. I wanted so badly that as a child that I had this kind of experience. That a father who would just pick me up and sing over me and rejoice. I made it up. I so long for that to be true. And yet, the glorious thing is, it is true with our Father in heaven. And in that sense, because that's the way it is and in full experience it will be, it's the way that we need to act today. That in everything, the eye has not seen, nor the ear heard, nor entered to the mind of man, what God has prepared for those who love him. Amen. Let's pray. We give thanks, Lord, for the glorious hope of heaven. Help us to live now in expectation of that and as we will live in that place, surrounded by your love, your graciousness, unified and even diverse. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.